Is it possible for you to do it all, have it all, and succeed at it all, all at the same time? Well, most of us live like the answer is yes. But if part of your goal includes being an effective mom to young children, is doing it all, having it all, and attempting to succeed at it all, all at the same time, really a wise pursuit? Is it even possible? I mean, winning the lottery may be possible technically, but what are the odds that it would actually happen? A friend of mine used to say, you can do anything you like, you just can't do everything you like, so choose wisely. Some help in making the right choices for you and your family, next on License to Parent. Hello and welcome once again to License to Parent, the radio outreach of Shepherds Hill Academy, a year-long residential program helping teens in crisis. Our host on License to Parent is Trace Embry, the founder and executive director of Shepherds Hill, and I'm Rich Rossell. And Trace, having it all, especially when we live at a time when there's a lot more all to have, can be a very tempting pursuit for most people. But with that have-all-do-all attitude, we've still got to face the fact that time isn't on our side, so we can't mm -hmm. do it all at the same time. And I, I think most of us get into a situation of having to rob Peter to pay Paul when our offspring become part of that equation, particularly in those crucial years before kindergarten starts, mm -hmm. wouldn't you say? Yeah, I see it all the time, Rich. And uh, I know we often talk about the negative effects of postmodern thought as it pertains to our culture and parenting, but I'm going to have to whip this horse a little bit more because ever since the, uh, the 1960s, the, the relativistic mantras of there are no absolute moral standards, my truth is as good as your truth. If it feels good, do it. And I should be able to do whatever I want to do when I want to do it. I mean, these ideas have dominated our thinking, and, and, they've, and they've now permeated into every aspect of who and what we are as a people. Mm. And this certainly includes our attitudes toward parenting, yeah. and for the sake of this program, motherhood. But until more people start recognizing that the emperor really has no clothes on at all, things are only going to get worse, because this kind of meism is logically unsustainable. And uh, history's proven that to be true uh, whenever it's been tried. So today, uh, if I'm a female, which I'm not, but uh, for the sake of, <laughs> sake of discussion, if I'm a female and I want a, I want a baby, I can't let that impede my, uh, my pursuit of all the other things that I want out of life. But it's right here that any thinking person realizes that we, we can't have it all when we want it all all the time, at least not without something or someone being compromised. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, it's too often common sense that gets compromised and the emotional, psychological, relational, spiritual, and even the physical health of our kids that end up, end up taking the greatest hits. With all that said, it's, it's good to know that uh, there are still some bold women out there who have the courage and insight to talk about the importance of mothers being there for their kids. Yeah, yeah. And particularly in those first uh, few years of life when those little brains are getting wired up like computers. Uh, and I know we, we talk a lot about the importance of moms and their roles here on the program and dads and their roles. Uh, but today's guest, uh, being uh, an educated working woman with kids herself, her insights are going to hold a whole lot more water than two bigoted male chauvinists like you and me, Rich, at least in the eyes of the, of the extreme left. And even then, I'll bet she probably gets attacked by the postmodern and politically correct lemmings who, uh, who'd uh, you know, rather risk their own kids being underdeveloped than, than risk their careers being under, mm -hmm. underdeveloped. Uh, as I see it, it's it's really just a simple matter of uh, getting our priorities straight, is it not? Yeah, priorities are important, and most of us miss uh, yeah, yeah, when trying to hit true. that target. Yep. Well, I I think uh, that our guest will definitely agree with you on 
probably all points here. Joining us today on Licensed to Parent is psychoanalyst, parenting coach, and author Erica Komisar. Erica works with individuals who suffer from depression and anxiety, eating, and other compulsive disorders. Uh, her goal being to help them live better lives, having richer and more satisfying relationships, and living up to their potential. Now, she's developed a series of workshops which teach parents how to raise emotionally healthy children, and she's also written a book that we thought was quite relevant to today's program. It's called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, and it's published by Tarcher Peregree. Well, Erica, welcome to License to Parent. Thank you for having me. Listen, uh, I really want to thank you for writing this book, and the first thing I want to know is how many contracts are on your life for writing it? (laughs) Um, We've had quite a response to the book, um, both positive and negative. Um, It's a controversial topic, Mm -hmm. and it's an important dialogue to have, but it's a very difficult one for society to have, and maybe a politically incorrect one. Um, But in my parent guidance and psychoanalytic practice, I was seeing this increasing devaluing of mothering, and I felt that we were failing our children. And um, I was seeing this epidemic level of emotionally troubled children with more and more serious symptoms uh, and emotional difficulties um, being diagnosed and medicated at an earlier and earlier age, and it really concerned me. Sure. Well, I happen to see stay-at-home moms as domestic professionals who are engineering the success of our nation's future. So why hasn't the term stay-at-home mom been as politically incorrect as uh, any other bigoted term thrown around today? You know, I I try not to use the term um, stay-at-home mom too often. Um, And in the book, I say that it's a complicated way to describe mothers who decide to be with their children because you don't stay at home all the time. And mm-hmm. um, but but having said that, um, you know there's so much value in mothering that we don't recognize that as a society we really are not valuing mothering. We're valuing material success and professional achievement, um, and we're re- we've really left behind the basics, which is that nurturing our children in the first three years develops their brain, develops their personalities, and builds emotional security for a lifetime of emotional security. And what is it about those first three years? uh, What's going on uh, with that parent-child relationship that is so important, particularly those first three? So the first three years are what we call the critical window of brain development. By three years old, 85% of a child's social-emotional brain is developed. You know, I looked over the past 15 years in writing this book, I looked at a lot of neuroscience and attachment and epigenetics research, and it really backed up what I believe to be true, which is a mother's physical and emotional presence as much as possible in the first three years is critical to the mental health of children. Um, Mothers do two really important things for children on a biological basis. They protect children or buffer children from stress from moment to moment, which then lays down the foundation for resilience to stress in life. And they also regulate a child's emotions from moment to moment throughout the day. Um, Think of it like standing on a rowboat and keeping the rowboat from tipping over. That's what mothers do all day long every time they comfort their child. By the end of that three-year period, those abilities to be resilient to stress, to regulate your emotions, they're internalized by a child. But if the mother isn't there, those abilities are not necessarily internalized. 
Well, you know, it, it, it might sound a little sexist when I say this, but uh, today's women are doing a lot of things that, that were once traditionally reserved for men. I'm talking truck drivers, auto racers, <laughs> UFC fighters, uh, police work, uh, military work. I mean, I was a policeman, and there were no uh, women uh, back in the day. Uh, we're talking astronauts, CEOs, on and on. Is there a forbidden fruit effect here? I mean, once you've tasted candy for a while, vegetables might not be so appealing anymore. But in the long run, uh, you're going to feel much better for eating them. Is, is the candy of the you-can-have-it-all world causing women not to enjoy motherhood or, or even like their babies like they seemed like they used to? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because in, in my book I talk about how you can have it all in life but not all at the same time, which is sort of in line with what you're saying. You can't have it all at the same time. Mm-hmm. You can't be a highly successful, famous um, very driven woman in your career and be emotionally and physically present enough for your children. You can work. Um, I worked and many of my colleagues uh, have worked. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in those years when you're raising children, it really requires prioritizing your children. And that may mean you work, um, but it may, may mean that you sacrifice some of the ambition in those early years that you might get back later. Um, you know, in the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew term, Yisraeli Ahava, which is um, the sacred obligation of nurturing. We call it the chains of love. Um, and when you have a child, you have an obligation to nurture that child for that child to be emotionally well. And I think there's a lot of uh, what's going on in society, women craving having children, but then when they have to care for them, really feeling at a loss. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the word sacrifice. That's almost a dirty word today. Uh, I think um, obligation is another word that uh, is kind of going away in this postmodern relativistic meism uh, environment. But um, we talked. You started to talk about epigenetics. Uh, yeah. What exactly is epigenetics? So epigenetics is the science, and it's really a new science and an important one of how the environment impacts um, the expression of our genes, meaning what we found is that there are many, many children, um, the research shows there are many, many children being born with a genetic sensitivity towards mental illness, um, what we call a short allele on the serotonin receptor. Um, And many more children than we've known are being born with this genetic Uh, precursor. Um, The issue is that the environment really has to turn that on. And so just because you're born with a gene doesn't mean that it gets expressed. And what the research shows is that a very sensitive and empathic uh, maternal presence or a mother being there who's sensitive and empathic neutralizes that gene. So that child has as great a chance of being emotionally well as a child who's born without that gene. Mm -hmm. That's epigenetic. So the environment implies whether our um, genes get expressed. So are are you saying that outside stimuli actually affects us at the cellular level? It does indeed. So um, when we nurture, we produce something called oxytocin. It's a a neurotransmitter in our brains, and women produce it and men produce it. Um, Interestingly, it has a different impact on women and men. When mothers nurture um, and they're healthy enough, their, their brains produce a lot of oxytocin, and so do the baby's brains. And it makes mothers more sensitive and more empathic towards their children. When fathers nurture, it makes fathers more playfully stimulating and encourage children to explore and play. 
Um, having said that, if mothers don't stay home and nurture, they produce less oxytocin in their brains, and therefore the baby's brains also produce less oxytocin. And I should say that over generations, um, oxytocin receptors are not passed down to the next generation. That is a good example of epigenetics, how, in fact, the environment can change our biology over time. Well, we've been saying this for years, and we, we, we understand this. We didn't, when we started, anyway, we didn't really know all the science behind it all. But we, we you know, we, we had common sense. We could observe it. Uh, so basically, uh, you'd have to say then that culture can actually make these types of changes also. And so I have to assume then that epigenetics... Uh, could be responsible for changing the appetites of women and men to desire things and activities that have traditionally been reserved for the opposite sex. Is, am I right, wrong in saying Ab- that? Absolutely. So one of the things that we're seeing is um, when men stay home and nurture their children, their oxytocin levels go up, um, but their testosterone goes down. So the research that is going on now is whether when men, when uh, women go to work instead of staying home to nurture, whether their testosterone levels go up and therefore their oxytocin goes down. That's what the research is doing now. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of room for research in this area. But yes, in fact, oh, generationally, mothering is passed down generationally and not just from a biological basis. It's passed down um, in terms of experience. When a mother is interested in nurturing, loves nurturing, um, is invested in nurturing. Uh, she passes that love of nurturing down to her daughters and her sons. Um, but when a mother is, is postpartumly depressed or distracted or disinterested in mothering or resentful um, or absent for one reason or another, what's passed down to the next generation is not the love of nurturing. Um, in fact, is often the same resentment and distraction and depression. So we say mothering is passed down generationally. Mm-hmm. In, in parenting, we talk about uh, you know taking care of our kids, taking care of our spouse, the importance of that relationship, taking care of ourselves. Uh, not necessarily in that order, but uh, what responsibility would you say that we have to our culture to produce emotionally stable individuals? I believe in the sacred obligation of nurturing. I believe that not every woman is meant to have children. Not every woman should have children. Meaning, if you want a linear life, if you want to work intensely um, and have this kind of linear career, and that's what's most important to you, um, that should be a perfectly legitimate option for women. But if you choose to have children, um, and this is for the fathers too, because what I'm finding in my practice is that the fathers also don't support the mothers to be home with their children as much as possible in the early years. The fathers also have become part of this societal trend of encouraging mothers to produce economically, be part of the, you know, be in that material success professional achievement line, um, adding to the economics of the household rather than the emotional value of nurturing. So, you know, for both mothers and fathers, um, you know, it's become a complicated thing. They they need to make all that money, Erica, so they can afford residential care for their troubled teenagers later in life. Well, that's that's an issue. Yeah, that's definitely an issue. (laughs) I, I need to jump in here. Joining us today on Licensed to Parent is psychoanalyst and parenting coach Erica Komazar. She's author of the book we're talking about called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. 
published by Tarcher Peregree. We will be back with more conversation on today's License to Parent right after this, so please stay with us. Remember back in the late 80s and early 90s as the internet hit the scene? You know, the information superhighway? We had great hopes that this new knowledge economy would make our teens more aware, diversify their tastes, and improve their verbal skills. But the enlightenment didn't happen. Technology has had the opposite effect. What once promised great hope for the future is now used to indulge in diversions. The Dumbest Generation by Mark Bauerlein, subtitled How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future, or Don't Trust Anyone Under 30, presents a portrait of the young American mind at this critical juncture, revealing the true cost of the digital age and our last chance to fix it. The Dumbest Generation by Mark Bauerlein, available in the store at LicensedToParent.org. Proceeds benefit the Shepherd's Hill Academy Scholarship Fund. Teen rebellion, depression, addiction, rage, cutting, and suicide are destroying our families today. But there is a way out. Shepherd's Hill Academy offers a 12-month Christ-centered nonprofit residential program where kids are being transformed with a biblical worldview and often medication-free. Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias is just one of many Christian leaders who understands what's happening at Shepherd's Hill Academy. It really is such an honor to come alongside Shepherd's Hill Ministries and licensed parents to rescue those who have been seduced along the way. Uh, I cannot gainsay how important this is, and to get behind a ministry like this, one will find the rewards to be extremely powerful in changing society. Get the help you need at Shepherd's Hill Academy. Go to HelpMyTroubledTeen.org. HelpMyTroubledTeen.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Licensed to Parent, the radio outreach of Shepherd's Hill Academy with our host, Trace Embry. I'm Rich Rosal, and our guest today on the program is uh, a lady who has written a book that uh, I'm sure is very politically incorrect right now, but we're loving it. Her name is uh, Erica Komazar, and she's author of the book Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And Erica, we've um, we've been talking about some of the important uh, reasons as to why it matters in terms of development of the child. But uh, I do want us to talk for a moment about the costs involved. Uh, my my wife and I uh, raised five children, and uh, when we started down that journey, we both agreed that it was important for my wife to stay home. So she quit work uh, outside the home, and we became a one-income family and are still a one-income family, and that's been 27 years now. So um, there are sacrifices that are made on all sides. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the program— and and you alluded to as well, you can do anything you want. You just can't do everything you want at the same time. So you gotta you got to make choices. Talk about some of these sacrifices within the family dynamic, um, financial or, uh, or, or otherwise. What, what sorts of things are you seeing that families are having to face when making these choices, and, and, and how are they making the choices? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think financially... Families are struggling when they make these choices. And, 
you know, again, there's no gain without sacrifice. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, to plan these things in advance, to understand the importance of of being there as much as possible. Um, and whether that means a mother doesn't work for the first six months to a year um, or she stays home in the early years of her you know, of her children uh, being home, uh, or she works part-time. In any case, it's going to require um, reducing the income in the family. And I think if you understand that it's important and you value, I mean, a lot of this is about what we prioritize and what we value. Um, there is a financial sacrifice, but it's not a permanent one. You know, and if we think we're all going to live till 120 like Moses, as they say we will, um, then, you know, if you think about it, um, we have a long life to make lots of money and have a nice, comfortable financial existence. We have a very short window to have that critical influence on our children. And there's no guarantee we're going to have that long life either. I mean... No. Well, uh, Erica, Dr. Laura Schlesinger uh, used to say, don't have them if you're not going to raise them. Uh, regardless mm-hmm. of what you might think about Dr. Laura, what are, what are your thoughts on that statement? I agree with it. Um, again, we, we have children. There seems to be an incredible hunger um, with fertility and everything that's going on in the world to have children, almost like having objects, having a vase or having a car. Mm-hmm. Um, not really caring for them. And so, you know, I agree with um, Laura Schlesinger, which is if we're going to have them, we have to take the responsibility to raise them and be there as much as possible physically and emotionally. Let let me get you to to talk to one other uh, subset of our culture, and that is the single moms, because Mm -hmm. there there are far more single moms raising kids than there are single dads. And I mean, it's it's very unfortunate, but uh, what counsel do you have for women who come to you and say, look, I really don't have a choice. I'm not getting child support. I'm, I'm the sole breadwinner and the mother of this child. How, how would you counsel that mom to be the best mom she can be in this case? You know, single moms, it's an interesting term, single moms, um, because I know what it implies. It implies that there's no father um, that's present enough. Um, And in our society, it sometimes implies there's no father, period, Um, women having children on their own. Um, Having said that, there are always other people. Um, We always raise children in communities. We always raise children um, in villages, you know, with our mothers and our grandmothers and our aunts and our fathers and uncles and neighbors we called uncle and our brothers. And, you know, we always had extended family around us to help support us raise our children. And we've become very isolated in this country. Um, We don't live near our families often. We don't accept our family's help if they even offer their help. Um, So I would say for single mothers to not be single, (laughs) to really find support where you can, you know, um, you know, to, to really, you know, reach out for as much support in your community as possible um, to your next door neighbor who you can call uncle, who will be like a father to your child, to um, reaching out to your mother and your grandmother and your aunts and your sisters and your brothers and really getting the help you need. And th- the reality is that children need mother and father figures. And so no one should raise um, children in isolation. And single mothers need as much support as possible when they're raising children. And I completely agree with what you're saying about needing to call call in the help from the neighbors and the families and all. I guess 
one further question in this, though, is how are those neighbors best able to help so as to help the child? Because, for example, I think the more typical thing would be mom, dad, neighbor, whatever, can you watch my child while I go out and work? But right. if that happens, then you've still got the mom leaving the child. So is it appropriate to say, can you help me financially so that I can stay home with my son or daughter? Yeah, that would be that would be pref- preferential. Um, so the idea is that um, in other parts of the world, the research in my book uh, by a wonderful researcher in Holland, she went around the world to see whether mothering is a universal thing in other cultures. Um, and she found that, yes, sensitive, empathic mothering is universal in other cultures. But what she also found is that alloparenting is practiced in other countries, meaning there are multiple attachment figures. But... What it really means, alloparenting, is that there's a grandmother and an aunt and the next-door neighbor you call aunt who the baby is handed off to when the mother is tired, but the mother is still proximate to the baby, meaning within physical distance of the baby. So when the baby is in distress, the baby can go back to the mother for comfort. That's alloparenting. In our culture, what we're practicing is not alloparenting. When we leave our children in the care of others and leave, when the baby is in distress, the baby cannot come back to us to be comforted uh, and to be regulated. So, right, we've distorted this idea of what it means to have support. Yeah, we're making a business out of everything. But uh, when when you encounter a woman who chooses to have a baby with no intent of allowing that baby to interfere with her career, do you see this as a moral problem? And if so, why or why not? I see it as a, a values problem. I see it as a prioritization problem. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're not prioritizing our children, we are going to have problems and consequences um, on a societal and personal level, which is what we're seeing. Yeah. ADHD, behavioral problems, social disorders, behavioral disorders. We have an increase in suicide. Um, there was a wonderful article in the Times about the increase in suicide in very young children. You know, we're, we're seeing the results of of really our neglect of our children. No, I think you're right. Uh, I, I believe that uh, values and morals, however, are cousins. Uh, yeah, bo- they are. Bottom line is we're messing with God's ecosystem and we're paying the yeah. price. And uh, that's the bottom line as I see it, Rich. Yeah. Yeah. Erica, we are out of time today. Uh, any closing thoughts from your research and your book? Um, if, if parents learn nothing else from this conversation, what would you have them take away? You know, I really encourage um, mothers and parents to think of life as a marathon, not a sprint, Mm -hmm. and to think that we can do everything in life, just not all at the same time. And when you have this critical window to really make an impact on your child's Mm -hmm. mental health for the rest of their lives, um, take that opportunity. That is great. good stuff. Erica, thanks so much for being with us on Licensed to Parent today. We appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you for having me. Joining us on today's program has been psychoanalyst and parenting coach Erica Komazar. She's author of the book, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. And it's published by Tarcher Peregrine. You can learn more about Erica's book on our website, 
Commissar.com. That's spelled K-O-M-I-S-A-R.com. You can also find the book uh, not only at that site, but also on Amazon. And this is Licensed to Parent, the radio outreach of Shepherds Hill Academy. For over 20 years, Shepherds Hill has been successfully helping troubled teens and their families push the reset button and get their lives back through a Christ-centered residential program. If you have a troubled teen and would like to learn more, please check out Shepherds Hill Academy by clicking the link on our website, licensedtoparent.org. While you're there, you can also find uh, our other conversations that we've had on a variety of parenting topics, and you can read and subscribe to Trace's blog. We even have a free ebook there for you that's called Crucial Resources for Navigating the Digital Age. It's yours for free when you visit licensedtoparent.org. Our guest coordinator on Licensed to Parent is Daniel Fasina. Our technical producer is Carl Peets. For Trace Embry, I'm Rich Rossell, inviting you back again next time to renew your License to Parent. And remember, folks, if you don't train your children, somebody else will. God bless you. We'll see you next time.